Okay, good morning. Let's get started. Usually when a baby dedication service is over, the church is done early and people get out and get to the buffet lines and we're going to take time to preach. We've already had a message this morning, but we want to go back to our study in the book of Revelation and see how this complements what's already been spoken this morning. So we should never... We should be the type of followers of Christ that we can't get enough of the preaching of the Word in our own lives and uh, you know, as we try to share the Gospel with others, we should never get enough of the preaching of the Word. Spiritually speaking, without the preaching of the Word, there's no nourishment. There's no nourishment. Unfortunately, that tends to be the least esteemed aspect of the worship service in these days and time. Everybody wants to do the praise and worship and all of these things, and the Word is the least esteemed. Most of what people will hear this day across America and its churches is a little sermonette for Christianettes. You know, something the pastor pieced together quickly so he can get his people out on time to get to the buffet lines. God forbid we'd ever be such a church. In fact, that type of church is what Christ is speaking against here to the church at Sardis. Last week we began this study of the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. Sardis was that church that had a name. It was living. Living in the eyes of men, but dead in the eyes of God. A spiritually dead church. We think of spiritual deadness as being boring. Something that's obvious to the eyes of men. But this church had a name, it was living. In other words, its reputation amongst men was that it was living. But to God, it was dead. And there's much today in American churchianity that we see as living, but I believe God sees it as dead. One of those is church growth. This idea of my church is growing and the numbers are increasing, therefore I must be speaking for God. Therefore God must be blessing me. Therefore our church is a tool of the Gospel, and yet the Gospel is not preached. And yet doctrine is compromised. And yet, yet ecumenical unity is emphasized. God's not behind those things. Church growth is not an automatic indication of God's blessing. In many ways, it's an indication of His curse. Because it's not growing in terms of reproducing genuine born-again believers, overcomers, as they're described here in the messages to the churches. It's increasing with worldly influence. That's a dead church. Now we've talked about how these churches, these seven churches, were actual churches in John's day. They're types of churches that exist at all times in church history. And it's also a prophetic foreview of how history would play out in the church age. That time from Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down and the church was born, until Christ raptures His church. And begins to pour His wrath out upon this world in a time of tribulation and also a time in which He will wake up the nation of Israel and fulfill His promises when Christ comes to set up a kingdom. So the church age plays out in history after the manner of the messages to these seven churches. And the Sardis church is the Reformation church period. It had a name that it was living, but it did not fulfill what it began. And what was produced wasn't the bold preaching that came with men like Luther and others, but what it produced was dead Protestantism. 
Idolatrous Roman Catholicism and dead Protestantism lead to the same place. Rebuke from our Lord. Oh, that we would not become dead in our faith. Oh, that our church would not become dead in the eyes of God, even though it may be living in the eyes of men. We kind of got into the introduction last week, first couple of verses of chapter 3, and we talked about Sardis in history. We talked a little bit about Jesus Christ as He's described here, possessing the sevenfold Spirit of God. That was Jesus Christ as millennial king speaking to Sardis, the Protestant Reformation that denied the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. That's what Protestant doctrine does. It denies the coming physical kingdom of Christ. Some of it teaches that we're living in that kingdom now and spiritualizes this whole book of Revelation. It was the millennial king standing there with the seven spirits of God from Isaiah 11 reminding them in that fashion that he knew they were dead and not alive. We talked a bit about how Christ's condemnation to Sardis and His condemnation to Laodicea are similar. Similar states, but different causes. Sardis' problem was unfulfilled commitment. Laodicea's problem, as we'll see in the weeks to come, is pride and covetousness. If we do not finish what we've begun in Christ, we stand to die or to be in a spirit of dead orthodoxy or dead churchianity. You know, the, the Bible tells us in Psalms 15 there are some characteristics given of a righteous man. And one of those characteristics of a righteous man in Psalm 15 is one that swears to his own hurt and changes not. One who makes the commitment and even though it comes to the place of hurting him or costing him something, he does not change. How many of us, and I've been guilty of this before, make commitments in our walk with the Lord, whether it's to the Lord Himself or to one another, and we don't fulfill it? I see in these churches all the time when they go about raising money for building programs and play on the emotions of the people and everybody makes pledges, and then half the people don't even fulfill what they said they were going to do. Um, making pledges, and that's not the means whereby we're commissioned to give to God's work, but... It produces all sorts of problems when churches try to make things happen themselves. But how many of us have made a commitment out of a readiness to will, out of a genuine desire to do something, and then we get distracted and don't fulfill it? That's what happened with the Protestant Reformation. That's what happened with the church at Sardis. And if we're not careful, it'll happen to us. May we be those that swear to our own hurt and yet fulfill it regardless. In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul describes perilous times that will come in the last days. And he describes the actions and attitudes of men that will be prevalent, not the exceptions to the rule, but prevalent, commonplace. From the last days, perilous times will come. Men will love their own selves. That's the American individual right there. Loves his own self. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Children disobedient to parents is listed right there with pride. Blasphemy. Unthankful. Man, we're so unthankful in this country. Unholy. Without natural affection. That's a reference to homosexuality. It's not natural affection between men and men and women and women. Truce breakers. Not, not keeping your promise. 
false accusers, incontinent, can't control yourself, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Isn't that the church here in America today? Now listen to verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. The church at Sardis had a form of godliness, a name that it lived, but it denied the power thereof, and therefore before Christ it was dead. So many claim the name of Christ having a form of godliness. They're in the church on Sunday morning, but denying the power thereof and not living thereby. We were out preaching, Daniel and I, Anna, Alicia, Nate, Janine went with us Friday night at Hickory Alive. And most of those people that were in a drunken stupor at that festival or whatever you want to call it are in church this morning. Thinking they're pleasing God, listening to a sermonette by, for Christianettes, and able to live as such on a Sunday morning and yet carouse and revelry and mock the preaching of the Gospel and blaspheme the name of Christ on Friday night. That's dead spirituality. A form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. What does Paul tell us to do with such? Turn away from that. That these type of people are those which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's way too much teaching. There's way too much learning, if that's possible in the church today. Not enough preaching. Not enough holy living. Ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth of what God's Word says. God's Word is simple. But there are those who are ever learning, ever studying, and they can't come to the simple truth because it's a spiritual problem. Dead spirituality. And these things ought to warn us in our walk with the Lord. As I said last week, when I was studying this message, I realized Sardis had a name that was alive to men, but dead to God. I've had people talk about how much of a blessing our ministry is and how encouraged people are, and I get responses to these messages online from people that have listened to them and all of this, praise of men. <clears throat> and I ask myself, is it possible that I could have a name that I'm living and am dead? Is it possible that our ministry has a name that's living but it's dead. Then a sense of horror came over me. A sense of horror. I'm thankful for that sense of horror. Because the problem is those don't even know there's a problem. May God always keep us aware. And that awareness is something that Sardis lost. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. So I'm going to get back into chapter 3 of Revelation. I'm not going to finish this message this morning. It's fine. It's fine because what Christ does here when He gives His counsel to the church is so full. It's a five-fold counsel beginning here in verse 2. And the aspects of this counsel are spoken of throughout the New Testament. Even the first commission here to be watchful, there's so much that the Word has to say. We need to look at it. And thankfully, we're not on a schedule and we can just do this according to God and His sovereign hand of providence. So beginning in verse 2, there is no commendation that Christ has given here as He's given to the other churches. There's a condemnation or an indictment. You have a name that you're living, but you're dead. Then what does He tell them to do? Christ points out their spiritual state of deadness. And then He gives them counsel. Friends, this is counsel straight from the mouth of the Lord. Counsel 
from the Lord through Paul the Apostle or through Moses or the others that wrote the Scriptures is counsel from the Lord as well. It's all God's Word. Some people think the red letters are more important than the others. That's not true. That's man-made fantasy. It's all God's Word. But this is counsel direct from the mouth of the Lord to His church. Verse 2, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore, verse 3, how thou hast received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Fivefold counsel from the Lord. He tells his church to watch, to strengthen, to remember, to hold fast, and to repent. Those five exhortations ought to be a part of our daily walk with the Lord. Constantly watching for His coming. Constantly strengthening the things that remain in our lives. Constantly remembering what we've heard and what we've been taught. Holding fast what we have. And repenting when we turn astray. This fivefold counsel of the Lord isn't just for Sardis, it's for any Bible-believing Christian, wherever he may be. Whether he's in a state like Ephesus or maybe even a state like Philadelphia or Smyrna where there's no condemnation, to follow this counsel is to prevent a state of spiritual deadness. Be watchful, Christ says. I think of that good old English word, vigilance. Vigilance. We are commanded as Christians to be vigilant. What does that mean? Vigilance is a state of being awake. Attention of the mind in guarding against danger. Attention of the mind. How many of us are so easily distracted? Oh, we're in church. We're doing our Bible study every day. We, maybe we're having devotions with our family at night, but throughout the day we're easily distracted and that attention of the mind to spiritual things is lost. I've been a martial arts instructor for 20 years. I love the martial arts. I marvel at the bridges that exist between martial arts as it has existed historically. It's never been something that's religious. That's American garbage. That's American fascination with Buddhism that tries to mix everything together. But I'm amazing at some of the bridges between martial arts and the gospel. For instance, karate. Karate means empty hand. Empty hand. The only way you can come to Christ, my friends, is with an empty hand. You can bring your works, you can bring your money, you can bring your popularity, and it ain't going to do anything. Unless you come with an empty hand, you will not find salvation. But we have something in martial arts. We, I, I teach my students. It's a state that we should seek in our daily life. The Japanese called it haposanshin, which means eight-directional awareness. How many directions are on the compass? Four major directions, four minor directions. There's eight directions. North, south, east, west. North, east, south, east. North, west, south, west. We ought to develop, I tell my students, you ought to always have an awareness of the mind that's eight directional. In other words, you're aware of what's going on with you in every direction. And that awareness can prevent you from getting into trouble. That awareness can allow you to defend your family or defend the defenseless or defend yourself if the need arises. That awareness can allow you to get out of a potentially dangerous situation. That's a physical eight-directional awareness. But we need to have that type of all-encompassing awareness spiritually. Spiritually. 
an attention of the mind. The Bible calls that vigilance. Watching so that we're not taken by surprise when it comes to temptation. What's the best way to avoid sin that we struggle with or are tempted by in our lives? Avoid it. See it coming and go the other way. What's the best way to avoid a confrontation? I tell my students, see it coming, leave. I used to fight all the time in school. Once I started taking martial arts, I've never had to again. I've been able to walk away from a few, quite a few. But we should have that sense of haposantion spiritually, aware, aware of temptation, aware of the times. Aware of what God's Word has spoken to us today. Aware of counsel that comes from godly influence. Aware of God's peace or His conviction in our life. Aware of the potential to sin that seemingly harmless things in this world yield. All-encompassing awareness. That is what it is to be vigilant. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, the children of Issachar, the descendants of Issachar, one of Jacob's twelve sons, are commended for having such a vigilance. It says that these children of Issachar had an understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Do we have an understanding of the times that we live in? To know what the church, what we as believers ought to do. Should we be building up a nest egg or fashioning a career or should we be aware that the time is short and give all to the cause of the Gospel? The command in Scripture to be watchful is mostly in the context of Christ coming for His church. And it's spoken of in a context of Christ coming as a thief. When Christ describes His coming as a thief, it means imminency. It could happen at any time. And therefore, the command to the follower to be watchful or to be vigilant is tied to that. You know, all throughout history, even to the Thessalonian church, Paul made it clear that Christ's coming was imminent. That means it could happen at any time. Yet, according to the Old Testament prophets and according to Jesus' prophecies of the last day Himself, there are things that have to happen before Christ will set up His kingdom and Israel is restored to a place of prominency. Daniel the prophet maps out what will happen. And we actually have a time frame of seven years of God's wrath and certain signs that will immediately precede the coming of the Lord. So my question is, how can Christ's coming be imminent for the church at any moment, and yet according to a blueprint that God has already laid out? How can that be? Well, it can be because when Christ comes for His church, He comes in the air. And He comes to take His church out of the world before He pours out His wrath. We call that the rapture of the church. That is spoken of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to see it in Revelation chapter 4. And that rapture of the church, for many who claim the name of Christ, will be as if a thief came and they were unaware. And those who knew Christ or thought they knew Him are going to find themselves left behind to endure what God has planned to pour out His wrath on this earth and to wake up the nation of Israel. So the command to watch is in terms of Christ coming for His church. 
Not only that He would come and take us as genuine believers, that we would be raptured to Him, but that we would be raptured to Him in a state without embarrassment, where He would find us working and not distracted. You know, a lot of this command to be watchful or this warning about Christ coming as a thief isn't a reference or a warning against eternal damnation. Not every time judgment is spoken of in the New Testament is it talking about hellfire and eternal damnation. Sometimes it's talking about earthly judgment. Sometimes it's talking about earthly consequences. Sometimes it's talking about a state of being ashamed in the presence of the Lord. There will be those who are saved and enter into God's kingdom carrying nothing but themselves. And they'll be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. We don't want to be there. Why be satisfied with just eternal life? Why not strive to, be rec- to, to, to bring Christ's glory through rewards that we can lay at His feet? And in order to bring Him glory, we must be watchful. So that day, that day does not overtake us as a thief. Someone turn, everybody turn to Matthew chapter 24. Christ is talking about the last days here. Matthew chapter 24. He's talking about how just as in the days of Noah were, it'll be this way when the Son of Man returns. Verse 38, For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving to marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Oh, it's been prophesied, it's been laid out, but people are so blind that it'll still be a surprise. It says here the flood came and took them all away. That's a Greek word that means to take away, to wash away. And then it goes on to say, in verse 40, Then shall two be in the field, one shall be taken, and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Watch therefore, for you knew not what hour your Lord doth come. Now that word take, in verse 39, when talking about the flood, is one Greek word. That means taken away. Taken away to judgment. And then the word taken in verse 40, and verse 41 is a different Greek word. It doesn't mean taken away. It means taken to oneself or received unto oneself. In fact, if you go over to Matthew chapter 1, that same word appears in terms of Joseph taking Mary to be his wife. It says that Joseph took Mary to be his wife in obedience to the angel's command. So there's a day coming when two will be grinding in the field. One will be taken by the Lord to Himself, the other left behind to judgment. Two women grinding at the mill. One will be taken or received unto the Lord. Paralambano, the Greek word. The other left behind for judgment. Are we ready for our Lord to come and take us to Himself? Just as it was imminent in the days of the Thessalonian church, it's imminent today. I don't believe any prophecy remains to be fulfilled before Christ can come for His church. In fact, the signs of the last days are all around. The state of men as revealed there in, 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 in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is obvious. 
It says, in light of Christ's coming to take His followers away unto Himself, in light of those that will be left behind, watch therefore, verse 42, because we know not what hour our Lord doth come. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells, the very next chapter He tells the parable of the virgins, the ten virgins, those that claim the name of Christ. You have those that had the oil and those that didn't. The oil is a symbol in the Scripture of the Holy Spirit. Those claiming the name of Christ but no oil. False converts who were lollygagging around and not ready when their Lord came. Then you had the true believers that had the oil of the Holy Spirit. They were ready. And the bridegroom came in the night and took them away. Took them away to that marriage supper of the Lamb. And those foolish virgins were left behind because they failed to watch. Jesus says in that parable in Matthew 25, 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. That's His coming for His church in the air. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We could get into a whole discourse about this in terms of Christ coming for His church. Chapter 4 talks about that coming of Christ in the air for His saints. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's not to make an immediate U-turn and come right back to earth for the second coming. It's a period of tribulation in between. And this is further confirmed in chapter 5. Paul has spoken to the Thessalonians about this rapture and to be ready and what will undoubtedly happen. Then chapter 5, But of the times and of the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they, not you, not you, not you the church, not you the faithful believers, when they shall say peace and safety. Here we have a change of pronoun. Remember how important that is? Then sudden that destruction shall come upon them. Verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you as a thief. Why? Because the Scriptures give signs. That day should never overtake us as a thief. Even Christ's rapture, which could happen any moment, should never overtake us as a thief. Because the Scriptures give signs. And we should be watchful, vigilant, and ready. You all are children of the light, verse 5, and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Neither are we appointed to wrath. Very clear in the Scriptures. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Watch and be sober. Connected to Christ's coming for His church. Watch. That command to be watchful is also inextricably tied to prayer. You can't divorce prayer from spiritual vigilance. Impossible. Someone look up Mark 13.33. Someone look up Luke 21, 34 through 36. Then I need Ephesians 6.18. I need Colossians 4, verse 2. And I need 1 Peter 4, verse 7. When someone has Mark 13.33, read it, please. Take ye watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. Time of the Lord's coming. Take ye heed, watch and what? Pray. Watching and praying, they go together. Luke 21, 34-36. And take heed to yourselves 
yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. That's talking about the days of tribulation and judgment and that there is escape from those days. And that escape is tied to watch and not just watch and pray, Mark 13, but watch and pray always. What is it Paul said? Pray without ceasing? Without ceasing? Maybe we don't pray without ceasing because what we think prayer is is really not what the Scriptures indicate it to be. I'll talk about that in a moment. Watch and pray always that we might be overcomers, that we might be ready and able to escape the judgment that's coming. And we escape when Christ comes for His church and takes us to Himself, receives us to Himself. Just like God did with Enoch before the days of the flood. Enoch was raptured out, preserved, taken or escaped from the flood. Noah, a type of Israel, was preserved in the flood. Ephesians 6.18 Is that Ephesians 6.18? Praying always with all prayer and supplication and spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication and all things. Praying always. Watching. See how they're always together? Watching, praying. We can't watch without a life of prayer. Colossians 4.2 Continue in prayer, watching the same. Our time of prayer ought to be a time of vigilance. It ought to be a time of watching. Not a time of going down a checklist of the things we want God to do for us. That's not prayer. 1 Peter 4, 7. Watch unto prayer. See how it's tied to prayer? Vigilance is tied to the coming of the Lord for His church. The command to be watchful to the, to the believer is tied to prayer. If your prayer life is, consists solely of going down a checklist of people you, you want to pray for every day and, and going down a checklist of your wants and desires, God, please give me this, please do this, please do this, that's not prayer because prayer is tied to vigilance. There's another interesting bridge here between what Christ is trying to say and what I have taught over the years in martial arts an old martial arts master once said, the most important aspect of being able to defend oneself or to defend those that can't defend themselves is you must set self aside and listen to the silence. If you're relying upon your strength, you'll fall to a stronger opponent. If you're reliant upon uh, uh, your own... Uh, your own effort in and of itself, apart from your circumstances and what's going on around you, you're going to trip and fall. In order to be a good martial artist, you must set self aside and listen to the silence. Okay? And that's tied to the idea that your mind is just as much of a weapon as your hands and your feet. You know, if you make good decisions with your mind, you won't have to use your hands and your feet. But anyway, I think about that statement and I think, wow, 
How much of our prayer is actually setting self aside and listening to the silence? Have you ever considered that prayer might be more about listening for God instead of talking, talking, talking to Him all the time? Not that we can't come to God, not that we shouldn't come to God and ask for our needs. Because if any man asks anything according to God's will, he'll give it. But we need to set self aside and be willing to listen to the silence. That's how you can pray always. That's how you can pray without ceasing. Your life is spiritually aware. And you're living so that in everything you say and do, you can do it heartily unto the Lord by watching in prayer, setting self aside and listening and watching for God to direct you. It's in the silence that God can bring Scripture to mind. It's in the silence that God can bring godly counsel we've been given to mind. It's in the silence that we feel and sense conviction from God. But we're too busy. We've got to rush through in a moment of trial and spew out that prayer to the Lord, Oh God, please, please, please. And yet we haven't taken one or two seconds in our very busy American life to set self aside, pause, and listen to the silence. That's how we pray without ceasing. Watch is also tied not only to prayer, but to the preaching of the Gospel and the sharing of one's testimony in Christ. I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 12. Just this simple commandment, there's so much here. So we may only get through one, two words in this passage this morning. Luke chapter 12, listen to this. I'm going to read a few verses. Verse 35. Listen to the first verse here, Christ says, Let your loins be girded. Now when it comes to the whole armor of God, what are we supposed to gird our loins with in Ephesians 6? Truth. Truth is the Word of God. Let your loins be girded and your lights burning. What is the light when, we're, when, when it's talked about a city on a hill or a, a candle that you shouldn't put under a bushel? What is that talking about? The, the seven lampstands here in Revelation. The light is what? It's one's testimony. Let your loins be girded and your lights burning. And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when He will return from the wedding, that when He cometh and knocketh, they may open unto Him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord when He cometh shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that He shall gird Himself and make them to sit down to meet, and will come forth and serve them. And if He shall come in the second watch or in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants... And this know that if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. So we are commanded to watch here. And that commandment to watch is tied to what Christ says first. Let your loins be girded and your lights burning. We watch in prayer. We also watch by preaching the gospel and giving testimony to a light world. I mean a dark world and a lost world. Letting our lights burn. Are your lights burning for the Lord? Are you a witness for Him on a daily basis? That's what it is to watch. Are you in prayer, listening to the silence, listening for God? Are you letting your lights burn before the Lord and before the world as a testimony? That's what it is to watch. To be watchful 
also means there, should, there is no place for fear or cowardice in the life of the believer. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 makes this clear. It says here in verse three, 13, excuse me, Paul says, Watch you, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. In other words, be men, be strong. Stand fast. All associated with strength in the absence of fear or cowardice. Somebody turn to Proverbs 28.1 and then I want Psalm 112 verse 7. Proverbs 28.1, Psalm 112.7. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I can't help but think of my encounters over the years with so many missionaries that were fearful of things that weren't even a reality in terms of ministry in a foreign country. So fearful they might get in trouble with the government or might get kicked out of the country, and yet these fears were not even reality. The Bible says the wicked flees when no man pursues. He's always afraid. All those people in Walmart the other day when a storm came through, one, there was a crash because a sign hit the building is what I've been told. Daniel was there. Jennifer was there. And somebody said something about a gun and everybody fled to the back of the store. There was never anybody with a gun. There was no, there was no tornado. There was nothing. It was a sign at the side of the building. Everybody fled. That's America. That's the church. The least hint of persecution. The least hint of resistance from unjust authorities. The least hint of mockery from the world. We flee. Oh, that's not effective. Oh, I don't want to offend someone. That's an aspect of the wicked, not the righteous. The righteous are bold as a lion. Bold just like those early apostles who preached the Word of God in the face of persecution. Bold just like those Baptistic Bible-believing Christians who suffered at the hands of Rome and would later suffer at the hands of the Protestants for preaching truth. Psalm 112, verse 7. Okay. A man that loves the Lord, a man that fears God, shall not be afraid of evil tidings. When you see the news every day, are you afraid? Do you want to just hide? The righteous man, the one that watches, his heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. These things should not give us cause for fear. We know the end of the matter. And we should see adversity, trial, and tribulation as an opportunity to watch through the proclamation of the Gospel. There is no place for fear or cowardice in the life of the believer. When the wicked are cast into hell after that great white throne judgment at the end of the book of Revelation, the first characteristic of those wicked that is mentioned is cowardice. It's the fearful and unbelieving and all liars and murderers and adulterers and so forth and so on that are cast into a lake of fire. Cowardice is a sin. Just like worry. Worry is a sin. Anxiety is a sin. Cowardice is a sin. If you're afraid... Repent and be watchful. And then finally, in terms of watching, 
I'm going to go right back to this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. I was there a few minutes ago. Paul said, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. The only way you can watch is if you're awake. If you're spiritually asleep, if you're spiritually dead like Sardis, you can't watch. There was a man who lived... He died in 1982, I believe. He was a, a bold preacher. He'd been saved out of Hollywood and out of... He's a child prodigy out of a life of wealth and fame. He'd been saved and gave his life to the Lord and had a heart for missions. Wrote some great music, some convicting music that even... 30 years later, still has that power of conviction and it's transcended musical style and musical uh, genre to where it can still uh, be powerful even today, 30 years later, when music has changed. But his name was Keith Green and he spoke about a dead church. Just like the dead church of his day, just like the church at Sardis. And he spoke about the church was asleep in the light and needed to wake up. He said this, the world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you, church, be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus arose from the grave and you, you can't even get out of bed. How can we be so dead when we've been so blessed by God? We have the Scriptures in a language we can understand. At the onset of the Protestant Reformation, maybe there were only... 15, 20 complete Bibles in existence at that time. Printed. Now when the printing press was invented, that increased exponentially, thank God. Thank God. But we've been so well fed. We've been blessed. We've been blessed. And we've reaped the benefits of the labors of those that have gone before. And yet we're so blind and asleep. To watch, to be vigilant, we must be mindful of Christ's coming. We must be in prayer. We must be burning our lights. We must share that we must be preaching the gospel. We must put away fear and cowardice and we must wake up. Wake up. The counsel of the Lord. Watch. Be watchful, he told the dead church. The next thing he tells them to do. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. Sardis not only needed the sword of the, wor the Word to poke it and wake it up, it needed a, a tool called a trowel to fortify, to build up that dirt around the things that remained. Trowel is something a lot of people take in the the back country when they go hiking to dig a hole and use a bathroom and then kind of fortify the place and disguise it. We need a spiritual trial in our lives to fortify the things we have so that they be not lost. The things that remain. Now, we, we, I've said, and in, in, in the typical expositor of this passage would say there is no commendation given to the church of Sardis. It's absent of a commendation. I'm not sure that's exactly true. Christ said, strengthen the things which are, remain that are ready to die. There were things that Sardis still had that Christ exhorted them to strengthen before they too died. So in this exhortation, there is a subtle commendation. 
This was something that Laodicea, we'll find out, didn't have. Sardis wasn't totally besieged and overthrown. There were things that were ready to die, but yet they remained. That's a commendation from the Lord. Man, that He would say to me, yeah, there's some things that remain. There's some things. There's some good there. Strengthen it. That is a commendation. May that be us. That can't even be said of much of what is churchianity here in America. But that which remains, we must strengthen. Well, what were the things that remained at Sardis? Paul, I mean, Jesus said you're, you have a name that you're living, but you're dead. And then they're told to strengthen the things that remain, but He doesn't ever say what they are. What things? Christ does not define these things here as He has done for the other churches. He's defined things for the other churches, not here. Why? Perhaps the answer is so obvious. Or perhaps Jesus is telling Sardis, you figure it out. You've got things that remain. If you don't know what they are, figure it out. If we've come to a place in our life where Christ says, do something, and we don't understand exactly how to do it, and yet we feel like He's so silent, and I'll do it if He'll just show me what to do. Have you ever considered that the answer is so obvious that He has a need to tell you? Be obedient. I've often looked for God to tell me how to do something specifically that His Word commands me or He's convicted me to do, and I never hear from Him. And so I'm like, okay, well... You know, I can't do anything, Lord, till, till, you, till you tell me what to do. Well, maybe the answer is so obvious. He didn't tell Sardis what to strengthen. It was obvious. And guess what? It's linked to an unfulfilled calling. Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have found thy works. I have not found thy works perfect before God. I talked last week about that word perfect means unfulfilled. Unaccomplished. The answer was obvious. You began something, you haven't finished it. So the key to waking up out of your spiritual slumber is to finish what you began. That's the obvious answer. A readiness to will. Just like the Corinthian church had in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul said, yeah, you had a readiness to will a year ago. When are you actually going to do what you started? As I said earlier, Psalm 15.4, one of the aspects of a righteous man swears to his own hurt and changes not. We don't need to be those type of Christians who have simply a readiness to do what's right. A readiness making plans to serve the Lord. We need to actually do it. I've known a lot of people that are gung-ho in their mind about serving the Lord, going on the mission field, going out to preach whatever, and they have a desire to do it, but they never get around to doing it. That's spiritual deadness. That's a state much like Sardis. And we need to strengthen that will that God has given us. Fortify it with a spiritual trial before it dies. It's bad enough not to perform what God's given us the will to do, but what happens when the will dies? When the will dies, if we don't strengthen it, then we're not going to care anymore. And then we're in trouble. Then we need to examine ourselves to see if we really are in the faith. Linked to unfulfilled work. And when you look at the Protestant Reformation, you'll see that's exactly what took place. A good work begun. 
bold preaching, sola scriptura, in other words, the Bible, not Catholic doctrine, all of these things, but they were left unfulfilled. And the church of the Reformation fell into spiritual deadness. And that's why there needed, there, there, it necessitated revival from the Lord in the 18th and 19th centuries to wake the church out of slumber. Strengthen the things that remain. Well, how can we strengthen the things that remain in our life? Can we do it? Or is the key to this exhortation actually a matter of source? I'm going to finish up strengthen and then we'll stop today. Someone look up Ephesians 3.16, Colossians 1.11, 2 Timothy 4.17, and 1 Peter 5.10. Ephesians 3.16, Colossians 1.11, 2 Timothy 4.17, and 1 Peter 5.10. That He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened by, with might by His Spirit in the inner man. That He would grant you to be strengthened. Is that in the active or the passive voice? It's in the passive voice. To be strengthened. In other words, that God would grant us to be strengthened, not to strengthen ourselves. The strength comes from an outside source. Colossians 1.11 Strengthen with all might according to His glorious power and to all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. Strengthened, passive voice, comes from an outside source. 2 Timothy 4.17 Notwithstanding the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Paul the Apostle, toward the end of his life, was remained strong in the Lord. But notice, he was strengthened by the Lord. He didn't strengthen himself. Strengthened by the Lord. 1 Peter 5.10 But the God of all grace, who had called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, seven you. Now the God of all grace strengthen you. The key to this exhortation is a matter of source. Just like boldness that we see in Acts chapter 4, verse 31 had to come from the Holy Spirit, strength has to come from God. And it will only come from God when we turn away from being men-pleasers and seek to please Him instead. Strength must come from God. So if we're going to strengthen the things that remain, we've got to go to Him. We've got to humble ourselves before Him and ask Him to give us the strength. We have to ask God to give us the boldness to share our faith. Without Him and the boldness that comes from Him, we'll never be faithful. Some people look at me and say, oh, you're so bold. No, I'm not. My knees quake every time I go to lift up my voice in the public forum and share the Gospel. The boldness comes from the Lord. And without that, I'd be a miserable failure. Strength has to come from the Lord. So Sardis had to quit pleasing men and please God to be able to strengthen the things that remained. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul was accused of all kinds of things because he took a stand for truth, accused even by his Jewish Christian brethren. And he says in verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? If I sought to please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Friends, if our desire is to please men and not please Christ... We're going to be spiritually dead 
And we won't be strengthened. It must be about Christ and pleasing Him. Not men and politics and government and favor with entities and institutions of power. How many who have begun a good work of ministry in our day and time got to a point where fear of God devolved unto fear of men. Pleasing God devolved unto pleasing men. And then, the, then, it got a, then it became about politics. Then it became about social causes. Then it became about building a kingdom here on earth. And what began as alive left this earth dead. I could name names. Some people that many of you would hold in high esteem. We should never hold men in high esteem. I'm sorry. If the nature of your conversation about the Lord is always tied to a man or tied to an individual failing to recognize that men are fallen, something's wrong. We should not esteem men above what they should be esteemed. God said, I have not found thy works perfect before God. The work of Sardis fell short in its motive and in its execution. Consider the Protestant Reformation. Praise God. The, the, the Reformers, sola scriptura, the Word of God, not tradition. Jesus Christ, not the Pope. Justification by faith, not by works. Those great doctrines of truth that came to light and pulled Europe out of the dark ages. It was William Tyndale, a faithful man of God, who translated the Bible for the English-speaking world into English. And he had to flee persecution at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s. And it was Tyndale that said, if the Lord will allow, I will make sure that even the plowboy in England can know more Scripture than the Pope of Rome. He ended up paying for his efforts to translate the Bible into English with his life. And he gladly and willfully did it. He was burned at the stake. Praise God. This is the type of mentality. This is the type of boldness in which the Reformation begun. A turning from the ritualistic idolatry of Catholicism. Good footing. But it's not enough that our ministry have good footing. It must bear fruit. It must grow. Very quickly, as the lives of the Reformers passed away and men began to esteem Men, instead of what God did through them. Sometimes within the very lives of these men who started a good thing, it became about politics, pragmatism, the way of Cain, coming to God on their terms. Infant baptism was retained and needed to secure church membership. State churches were needed to secure church growth. Persecution of the quote-unquote heretics, that means people like me, People like you, practicing believers' baptism, preaching in the streets without a license. The persecution of those was needed to secure continued existence of the Reformation political movement. And then traits of a Catholic mother were retained to obtain political backing. It ceased being about pleasing God and became about pleasing men. And that's why many of our spiritual forefathers, faithful men of God, as time wore by, not only faced persecution from the world and from the Catholic Church, they began to face it from Reformation churches as well. I already spoke about last week how Martin Luther in 1536 signed a memorandum by, one of the, uh, by a fellow German Reformation leader that issued the death penalty for Anabaptists who practiced believer's baptism 
despite Luther's own closet agreement that they were scripturally correct. Ulrich Zwingli turned on his Anabaptist students that supported him when he broke away from Rome. Some of them were martyred because of his directives. John Calvin distanced himself from the Anabaptist label and even advised King Edward VI of England to put those to death who did not conform to the authority of the state church. Politics. Good footing eroded with politics and men-pleasing. It's not to say God didn't use these men. It's not to say that their efforts in preserving the Scriptures didn't change the world. They did. But may we not finish as those who fail to complete what God has called us to do so that we are ashamed in his, at His coming. Ashamed doesn't mean damned. It means ashamed. There are many things we could learn from the lives of the Reformers before we start judging them too critically. But don't esteem men higher than they are. Good footing eroded into politics and pragmatism and men-pleasing. And guess what else? The Reformation that began with those foundational truths brought to light failed to recover the promise of Christ's coming. What was the Thessalonian church commended for in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? Paul said, praise God that you turned to Him from idols. That was a reformation. Turning to God from idols. And you also, Paul said, not only turned from God to idols, but you turned to wait for His Son from heaven, which delivers us from the wrath to come. So the Thessalonian church turned from idols, but it didn't stop there. They turned to wait or to watch for the coming of the Lord for His church to deliver them from the wrath to come. There's a lot of dangerous eschatology that comes out of the Protestant Reformation. Eschatology is the study of end times that minimizes or does away with a literal second coming of Christ. Post-millennial theology, that's Roman Catholic, Catholic theology, comes from Augustine in the City of God, his theological work from the 4th century, I believe. Amillennialism, covenant theology, which says that the church has replaced Israel. All of that stuff came from Catholicism. And those traits of a Catholic mother were retained in a lot of the Reformers in the Reformation churches. They failed to wait for the Son from heaven my friends, the second coming of Jesus Christ is a key aspect. His coming kingdom, His literal kingdom and fulfillment of promise is a key aspect of the Gospel that must be preached. Without a returning Christ to set up a kingdom, the Gospel is incomplete and not perfect before God. That is my conviction and I'll preach it to the grave. That's why when I preach the Gospel on the streets, I preach the coming of Christ. And so to talk about the coming of Christ is something we can't know anything about and we ought to just leave it up to God and focus only on justification by faith is to present a God who ultimately isn't faithful to keep His promises. If we can't trust God to keep His promises regarding the nation of Israel and the second coming of Christ, how can we trust Him to keep His promises where our salvation is concerned? Paul talked about those as he was ready to die there in the prison in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he talked about those who 
would, like, would be like Him. He talked about a crown of righteousness that He was confident had been laid up for Him by the Lord, the righteous judge. Not for Him only, but He says, unto all those also that love His appearing or love His coming. Many of the reformers put the coming of Christ aside. And as a result, the dangerous doctrines of post-millennial and all-millennial theology, covenant theology, were retained. Traits of a Catholic mother passed on to those who came out of that Catholicism. I know some good brethren, some bold preachers, guys that I preach with that still hold to those doctrines because that's what they were raised to believe. Failing to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Failing to see the importance of Christ coming literally to fulfill all righteousness. Doesn't mean somebody's not saved. Doesn't mean they can't be used of the Lord. Doesn't mean that there's not ways that their lives are convicting to me. But friends, we have to strive that our works be perfect and complete. Our preaching be perfect and complete before the Lord and not settle for anything less. Therefore, we must preach and hold fast to the return of Christ. The watching that we're commanded to do is so tied to the return of Christ, how can we minimize that doctrine because we're afraid of offending someone that might not agree with us? Oh man, there's good brethren that believe a different way, so we just can't talk about it or discuss it like men because we might offend them. That's ridiculous. So the counsel of the Lord to Sardis is to watch. It's to strengthen. It's to strengthen. Not strengthened of our own effort. Not strengthened by our own power, but strengthened by God. Strengthening the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. We need to strive that our works... Our works don't save us. Our works are what bring glory to God. They justify us in our profession before men. It's faith that justifies us before God. Our works bring glory to God. Let your light so shine before men that that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. But may those works be fully accomplished. That in the day of Christ's coming, we won't be ashamed or embarrassed. But we're able to glorify Him. Do you want to be one of those Christians at the judgment seat of Christ where your works burn up in the fire because the motive and the execution wasn't there? And yet you only, you only are saved as by fire? Oh, praise God for that. Is that what you want to be? You want to have nothing to offer up to the Lord like the saints do in Revelation 4 and 5 when they cast their crowns down at His feet and say, Worthy art Thou, O Lord, for You've redeemed us out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. I don't want to settle for second best. I want to settle for the best. To bring glory for God to God, not just through my faith in Him, or my repentance that comes from Him anyway, but through our works to bring glory to Him as a demonstration of gratitude for what He has done. Make no mistake, salvation is not by works. But salvation produces works. That's the biblical injunction. There is no contradiction between Paul the Apostle and James the Apostle. Works do not justify us before God. Repentance and faith do. But works do justify us before men. That's why James could say, you say you have faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. So those that do not bear fruit, those that do not overcome, don't have the faith they think they have. 
Because that faith, that repentance from God produces those things. And God commissions us or exhorts us to bring those to fulfillment, to full accomplishment, as the church has often failed to do, as Sardis has failed to do. I told you we wouldn't get very far. We got through one verse. Be watchful. Strengthen the things which remain. This will be the last time I'll share with you guys for a little while. I'm going to be in South America for about a month. Please pray for us. Uh, we're going to be targeting Israeli backpackers. I love witnessing and sharing Christ with Israelis, especially the young people who just have just gotten out of the military in Israel and they're traveling the world and they're seeking something in life and they tend to be open. And when your eschatology is right, you can find great grace and joy knowing that Maybe these young people are so open aren't going to come to Christ now. Maybe we're actually preaching the Gospel and planting seeds of conviction in the lives of Israeli young people that when Christ comes for His church, which I believe is soon, maybe it's some of these that are going to be sealed in their forehead. That 144,000 that's going to go to the ends of the world and complete the job the church didn't finish. Every tribe, tongue, and nation here in the Gospel. Maybe that's what's going on. That's a joy. That's what Ricky was sharing with me the other day and I never thought of it that way. Some of these people are so open. Maybe that's, these are some of the people God's going to use to complete that job, to bring in the gleanings of the harvest that come in during that tribulation period. Praise God for that. To be a part of something like that. To take the Gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's funny how those that deny the literal return of Christ in a literal kingdom often are pretty anti-Semitic. They don't have any place for sharing Christ with Jewish people in their ministry. They think Jews are just a bunch of Christ killers and they've been elected unto damnation and we don't even need to waste our time sharing the gospel. That's disgusting to me. You know, God told Abraham, I will bless those that bless those and curse those that curse you. The psalmist exhorts us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, always went to the synagogue first to preach the gospel. Even after he said, I don't want to do this anymore, he still did. So it, it, it's going to be exciting, and I pray, I pray for us. Uh, when we get back, I'll just pick up where we've left off. And in the meantime, let's be those that watch for our Lord, strengthen the things that we have, fortify them, so that we can be used of Him. Instead of looking behind and regretting what we have or haven't done, maybe some of us regret that we haven't followed a certain calling or we didn't do something at a younger age. There's no place for that now. Don't look back. Strengthen what you have now. And let's go forward and let's be found faithful when the Lord does come. So thanks for your time this morning. I'll be leaving tomorrow. Pray for us. Lord willing, Ricky and Dylan will be picking me up at the airport on Wednesday morning. And we're going to get right to it. So pray that we'll have lots of opportunity to share Christ, not only with the Jewish backpackers, but with the locals. Uh, or whoever the Lord uh, might bring into our path. John Lane from South Dakota is going to be joining us uh, for the latter half of that journey. So I'm very excited. And I'd appreciate the church's watch care and uh, uh, sensitivity and concern for my family while I'm away, as it's always been faithful to do. So um, why don't I pray over the food, um, and we'll enjoy some fellowship together. Thank You, Lord, for this day. Thank You for the exhortation and the deep truth and the deep convicting words we find in a simple exhortation You gave to the church at Sardis, Lord. Even just a part of it, to watch, be watchful and strengthen the things that remain. Father, we know that the, 
even our repentance and our faith must come from You. As Jonah cried from the belly of the well, salvation is of the Lord. Lord, we know that that boldness, as the apostles demonstrated, must come from the Holy Spirit. Lord, and, the, and, and, and vigilance and, and strength must come for you, from You. So we ask You to give it to us. Lord, we ask You to help us to be people of prayer, Lord, that are sitting, are willing to sit, put self aside, and listen in the silence for what You may be telling us to do. Listen to Your Word instead of talk, talk, talk all the time. Not that we can't go to You. Praise God, You're a God. We can go to You and bring our petitions before Your throne. The gods of men don't allow that. You can't just go to Allah, the God of the Quran, and, who is the devil, and, and, and bring your petitions before Him as if He will hear. But God, You are a God that does hear. And You're a God that speaks through Your Word. So help us to be people of prayer always. Lord, forgive us where we have failed to accomplish what You've begun in us in times past. As we go forward, help us to fortify that which remains so that when we do leave this earth, Lord, there's no regret in terms of our labor for You at the moment that You come for us, whether it's in death or the coming for Your church. Thank You for the blessed hope, Lord, the great appearing of, the, of, of Jesus Christ, Lord, for His church. We long for that. And Lord, as You decide... According to Your will to tarry, may we be found faithful like those faithful virgins, our lights burning, full of the oil of the Holy Spirit, ever mindful, ever aware of an opportunity to serve You, to encourage one another, and to be a light in a dark world. Father, thank You for the food You've provided. Thank You for the special time of fellowship we enjoy here every Sunday, apart from the trappings of American churchianity that's so focused upon buildings and programs and megachurches and all that. Thank You for saving a remnant out of such distraction, Lord. Thank You for the remnant that's within the church, Lord. Thank You for the remnant that's at least finds itself outside of a church body in certain circumstances, Lord. I pray for them that You would bring brothers and sisters into their paths, Lord. For our, our, our suffering brethren who can't come together and freely worship, Lord, and fellowship as we do today, Lord, that You'll strengthen them uh, to be a witness for You even in those circumstances. Lord, we... Uh, just thank You and are humbled in, in, in Your presence. And we're humbled by Your truth. We're humbled by the responsibility You've given us to raise up godly seed, Lord. And we pray You'd strengthen us to do so. And that our children, if You tarry, Lord, will grow up and have those same desires and finish the things that they've begun in You. Our grandchildren as well. All these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.